my huge pleasure to, um, uh, to introduce our two speakers um, and to welcome Marcella Schulak, who's come from uh, Bar-Ilan uh, University, and our own Adriana Jacobs, who many um, of, of you know. Um, uh, Marcella is, writes as, um, as a poet, as a critic, um, and as a translator from uh, Hebrew, Czech, and the French, for instance, of the Congolese writer Mutombo Nkolong Senga. Um, it's wonderfully, I only know your stuff from online, but as a kind of a wonderfully interesting intersection of different varied uh, kinds of writing. Um, so, um, include, so your critical work on 1920s New York and the poetry of 1920s New York, um, a volume, co-edited volume, um, exploring, exemplifying and exploring a whole range of hybrid um, hybrid literary um, hybrid literary genres. So, um, so this is what else should I say? So this is my this is this, this is Marcella, and also um, that you're going to be doing a, a reading of your own poetry tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, where and when? It's at the Clarendon Institute building, which is on Walton Street, just south of Oxford University Press, and it'll be at three p.m. So three to four. So it's like a poetry break. If you want to stop by. Great. And then Adriana, who many of us know, who also writes as a poet and translator and um, critic. Uh, there's a critical book, excitingly called Strange Cocktail, uh, which is coming out. Someday. Uh, uh, coming out <laughs> sometime soon. Yeah. About uh, recent contemporary Hebrew poetry and translation. This, what's the subtitle exactly? Which I it's translation. It's very pompous. Translation and the making of modern Hebrew poetry. Okay. Um, and I wanted also to mention uh, your uh, the, the book that you... Um, shared in the translation of Women's Hebrew Poetry on American Shores, poems by Anne Kleinman and Annabelle Pongolong, which, mm -hmm. uh, which has been out for years so now. But, uh, yeah. 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 No, and I'm happy that project was very much about reviving lost voices, so it fits well with this idea of translation as afterlife. So I can talk about that later when we yeah. bring everything together. Yeah. Um, which I should have mentioned the title of which both speakers are speaking is translation. Which <laughs> 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 that fantastic image online of like the the, the form going into the, the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. It was a beautiful yeah. yeah, that was that was very and we thought, as usual, we'll listen to both talks and then have a kind of uh, extended discussion. Kind of um, so should I start? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, mine's titled very simply, Chazi Leskli's Zombie Memories. And it's a mix of kind of a scholarly reading with um, a reading of translations from the cycle Zombie Memories. I'll say more about that in a moment. Um, I'd like to open my talk with a very short poem by Chazi Leskli, this Israeli poet, um, whose work will be the subject of the discussion that follows. This poem is from a series titled The Hours, which appears in his 1992 collection Ha'achbarim Velea Goldberg, uh, which translates into English as The Mice and Lea Goldberg. And this poem is called The Hour of the Dead Poem. Um, and I'll read it first in Hebrew, it's very short, and then in my translation. So in Hebrew, the title is Sha'at Hashir Hamet, The Hour of the Dead Poem. Hashir Hazeh Huketovet Al Matseva, Shemitachtea Kavul Hashir Hazeh. This poem is an epitaph on a tombstone, and beneath it, this poem is buried. Chazi Leskli was born in Israel in 1952, the only child of Czech Holocaust survivors who had settled in Giva Time a city just east of Tel Aviv. Leskli's sexuality, he was gay, 
disqualified him from army service, thereby freeing him to leave Israel to study visual arts in the Netherlands. But his failure, or rather refusal, to fulfill Israel's compulsory military service also put him at odds with his father, who came from a long line of military men. Living in Europe in the 1970s, Leslie was able to explore and experience gay life without constraints. The years following the 1967 war in Israel were particularly charged, as it became clear that the territorial gains of 67 would have long-lasting social, political, and ethical repercussions in Israeli culture. And by moving to Europe, Leslie not only removed himself from this highly charged context, but he also gave himself the freedom to develop as a writer unencumbered by the social and ideological demands placed on Hebrew literature in this period. Following his return to Tel Aviv in the 80s, he dedicated himself to dance and poetry and established a reputation in both fields. Leslie emerged as a highly regarded and feared dance critic and a celebrated choreographer. References to dance not only recur in his work, but they also shape the visual poetics that he put forward. His final collection, provocative, provocatively titled Dear Perverts, Sotim Yakarim, was published shortly after his death of AIDS-related complications in May 1994. So this expression, zombie memories, refers to a cycle of poems that appear in his penultimate book, the aforementioned The Mice and Leah Goldberg. But it also provides a framework for reading these poems, and in fact for translating them, which I can talk about later. Uh, many of which were composed in the years following his diagnosis. It's an unusual title, but I'd like to parse it for you as a way of introducing my translations of his zombie poems, as it were, and through which I'll address this idea of translation as afterlife. Leslie was a regular contributor to Tel Aviv's periodical Ha'ir, The City, and later became an editor of its supplement, the popular entertainment guide Akbar Ha'ir, City Mouse. Leslie had a lot of freedom with the supplement, and he encouraged contributors to play with the content, particularly with the language of sections as mundane as real estate listings and museum openings. So um, it, it just really funny, playful ways of approaching um, this very kind of mundane um, content. But mice are also pests and interlopers. They find their way into our most personal, intimate spaces, into the tiniest corners of our homes, and this capacity for movement and subterfuge gives shape to a number of poems in this collection. Leslie's mice creep up sometimes suddenly and unexpectedly, as in the following poem, in fact, the opening poem of this collection, a poem titled simply Poetry. And I'm gonna read it in English for the sake of time. So this is my translation of poetry. Poetry must stand up and speak. Stand on the broken down washing machine and speak in the language of the sock that caused the breakdown. Poetry must stand on the windowsill and speak in the language of those standing on windowsills. Poetry must dance. Twitter in the language of the mouse who lives under the stage, alarmed by the exaggerated tenderness of the dance. Poetry must knock on the door, silently or furiously, without touching the bell. Poetry must go to Barcelona and speak English. Poetry must rest, above all, rest. Poetry does not have to be poetry. It can be food that speaks. Poetry can be fruit preserves, dead and delicious. Poetry can be nutrisweet, carcinogenic artificial sweetness. 
Poetry can build houses, a residence, a hospital, a school, a prison, a synagogue, but it prefers to discover a milk well in the city center. Poetry must sleep, sleep and dream about poetry. Poetry must lie down, lie down and talk in its sleep. Poetry must be buried in the earth and speak in the language of the dead. Poetry must care for the sick. Poetry must fail itself, lose itself, betray itself, abandon and be abandoned. Poetry must live. And Leslie also attempts to translate the language of the mouse and to turn the mouse into a poetic speaker, into a Hebrew poet, as in the following short and playful poem, which is titled Poem of the Mouse. And it goes like this. Nee, 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 this night has no other. A Hebrew-speaking snare lies in its heart. To describe this night in Hebrew, I must die. Nee, nee, nee. <laughs> so, um, so very funny poem, <laughs> um, and it was fun to translate. Putting mice aside for a moment, I want to address the presence of Leah Goldberg in the title. Uh, the poet Leah Goldberg, who immigrated to Palestine in 1935, was one of the major figures of 20th century modern Hebrew poetry and translation. But what she's doing in this collection is initially unclear. There are no poems dedicated to her, and none that appear to engage directly with her work. All we have is a kind of clue or relation are the opening epigraphs of the section Zombie Memories. The first states simply, I will die tomorrow. And these are words attributed to Goldberg. And the second, I don't want to read anymore. I'm going to die today, is a statement that is reportedly the final words of the German-born Hebrew poet Avraham ben Itzhak. Um, and I'm going to say more about these two characters. Goldberg and Ben Itzhak, are, um, they were close friends. And Goldberg recorded these words, um, I don't want to read anymore, I'm going to die tomorrow, or die today, in her elegiac essay on Ben Itzhak, an essay called uh, Encounter with a Poet, Pegisha in Meshore. In this essay, Goldberg takes us through the history of her friendship with Ben Itzhak and his refusal, his enigmatic refusal to write poetry beyond the 11 or so Hebrew poems that has had established his reputation. He insisted that she promised that she wouldn't write about him after his death, a promise that she soon broke, not only with the publication of this essay, but also with the handful of poems that she dedicated to his memory. For Goldberg, who was one of the paragons of 20th century modern Hebrew, of the modern Hebrew canon, her encounter with this famously silent German Jewish poet provided an important bridge between um, the emerging Israeli state and the European Jewish diaspora. But Benny's Huck's silence also carried the burden of the severed and lost connections of the war years and the cultural baggage early immigrant writers were compelled to reject in favor of monolingual territorial nationalism. Despite Goldberg's attempts to reconstruct an image of Benny's Huck in this essay, the project is shadowed throughout by his explicit refusal to be remembered, represented, and translated. In his 1985 autobiography, Das Augenspiel, The Play of the Eyes, the German writer Elias Canetti writes of his friendship with Ben Itzhak, and he writes, maybe we were reluctant to talk about him as we did about anyone else, for his essential qualities were hard to formulate, and even persons who were themselves devoid of moderation admired his moderation. Thus, we were exceedingly careful in talking about him to avoid distortions, Canetti wrote. 
In writing about Ben Yitzchak, Kennedy and Goldberg are compelled by two often competing objectives. The first is to provide a biography for a poet whom both writers view as a kind of endangered species and whose presence they feel must be represerved. Indeed, the last line of Goldberg's essay states as follows. Those who knew him know that now there is one less person in the world. Both texts, um, that is Canetti's memoir and Goldberg's essay, attempt to revive Ben Yitzhak, and they attempt to speak on his behalf. They offer future readers a way of knowing him, even in his absence, by filling the space of his silence with their own writing. And yet, although Goldberg's essay begins by stating this objective, she also hints at another motivation for the essay. And I'm going to quote, and this will all get back to Chesi Leslie, I promise. For those who were privileged for so many years, Goldberg writes, to enjoy Ben Yitzchak's proximity, to hear from his own mouth his wonderful words, his conversations, his stories, his observations, and his precise and illuminating definitions, it seems as though they had received from his own hands a precious treasure, too precious to remain in one set of hands. And it's not possible that these things can pass by and be forgotten when our own hearts have forgotten them and let them pass by, she writes. So what preoccupies Goldberg here is namely the devastating possibility that her very dear friend and a writer whom she admired tremendously could simply fade entirely from human history and memory. And therefore writing this memoir and translating their German conversations into Hebrew resists his own demand that he be forgotten and offers him via this writing and translation a form of textual afterlife. And it's not hard to see why Leskli invokes this relationship in this collection and particularly as a way of introducing the poems of zombie memories, which are by, are by and large concerned with living and dying, with memory and afterlife. In the opening poem of zombie memories, Leslie addresses the various translations and transfigurations that shape our identity and the poem itself. And for the sake of time, again, I'll read my, the, poem, the opening poem of zombie memories in my English translation. Um, and like many of the poems in this section, it's also untitled. In the beginning was a lovely cliché that asked for nothing more but to declare itself. And the cliché was made flesh, and flesh was made a ghastly bracelet around the wrist of the divine pretender, and the hand dug a tunnel through the very world it wanted to escape. And we made the tunnel a house. In the middle of the house we placed a chair. In the middle of the chair we put an apple. What do you do with a chair and an apple, we asked ourselves. And that's how the question mark was made. We kissed the chair and nibbled the apple. We nibbled the apple and said, Amen. Blessed are the lips in the tunnel, whistling a tune we dared negate. Blessed are the lips wrapped around the apple, tightly wrapped around the apple of our budding imagination that gets scared like an apple. And it ends with an exclamation mark. So that's how the exclamation mark is made. In this poem, Leslie reimagines the origins of the poem in language that recalls the first books of Genesis. By invoking the cliché as the first word of creation, Leslie complicates ideas of originality. Clichés, after all, represent language that has been overused. In other words, this is language that has lived, and maybe lived too much. But as another Hebrew poet once remarked, um, and this is the poet Chaim Nachman Bialik, for those of you in the know, um, although clichés are what he called the dry husks of language, Poets, in particular, have the ability to revive and reanimate the cliché, to breathe life into it and set it forth to experience and create new relations. So in effect, this cliché is kind of like the zombie, right? It's a, it's a worn out um, form of language 
um, that is waiting to be revived and reanimated. Again, it's hard not to see how these possibilities for linguistic revival and reanimation would be compelling to a poet experiencing the breakdown and decay of his own body. According to the poet Mir Wieseltier, Leskley would speak about having AIDS, and I quote, the same way people say, my shoes are tight. I'm going to read one more poem and actually end with this poem, and this one's also untitled. Here, Leskley addresses his own beginnings in more autobiographical terms but again as a way of reflecting on the capacity of poetic language and the space of the poem to create continuities that defy decomposition. And this poem is also entitled, so. I have three stillborn brothers, and they call me to return to them. I betrayed them when I was born and deserted into the world. They miss me, and I miss them. They can never return, but I can return to them. Come, come, they say, we'll be a band of corpses, a tight-knit family that never loses a single crumb. In the beginning, I lived near cities. I was born in Rehovot and lived nearby. Then I moved to Dora, near Netanya. Only later did I dare to live, really live inside the cities, inside their delicate, sick bodies, Givatayim, Hague, Amsterdam, Tel Aviv, places where I learned to translate, come, come, into other words and made poems with these words. And two years later, Hezzi Leslie would die at the age of 42. Mm. Are there any uh, quick points of clarification before we move on? Like, you can carry out short titles, you want little names or anything like that. So. I'll just pull this up real quick. Okay. <clears throat> Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming here to, to hear us tonight. Um, I had originally titled my talk Translating Ghosts and Unborn Souls When Love Poetry is Political, but I've become really enamored of, of the title that Adriana suggested, which was the translation as afterlife, especially with that great poster, um, and a little bit less concerned with the political aspects of love poetry as I was writing the talk. So I do think that all, po that all translation is an afterlife, as, um, as Adriana was suggesting, in the sense that it allows a poem to exist in a second language in a second world, but I wanted to talk about the ghosts and the unborn souls that inhabit Oritsky Dali, uh, both in the original language and in the translated versions, and I want to focus on the way in which our really unusual collaboration gave Oritsky Dali's original poetry a second life in Hebrew as well as in English. Um, by allowing her to rewrite previously published poetry for translation, for the translation that I was working on. Um, I will tell a little bit about the project and then I'll tell a little bit about Orit Gidali. At the time I began translating her work, um, Gidali's a rather young poet, I think she just turned 41, last year 42. Um, she had, and she began to publish when she was in her 20s. So she had published, um, two volumes of poetry, 20 Girls to Envy Me in 2003, and Closing In in 2009. And she'd begun to work on a third collection called Cradle about the illness of her mother. And that time though, her mother did pass away. So 
the third collection that she envisioned, she broke into two. So there was a third and a fourth, but the fourth hasn't come out yet. The third came out uh, last month, and the translation that I published of hers came out in August. So we were working on a tight um, schedule here. Um, I included selections of her newest book in the translation, and the translation is called Selected Poems of Warit Gidali, 20 Girls to Envy Me. The three books formed a useful narrative arc when you think about it in terms of unborn souls and ghosts. The first book was written from the point of view of an unmarried woman whose relationship with men are haunted by biblical love stories and the desire for children who have yet to be born. The second book is written from the point of view of a mother who has adopted her husband's um, child from a previous marriage. The first wife, the child's biological mother, has committed suicide, and so the marriage and the entire household is haunted by the first wife. The speaker has given birth to three more children and contextualizes her situation through the leitmotif of Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. Um, and the speaker's, and the third book was, um, is haunted by the speaker's dead mother. It's called Cradle. Since the deceased mother was young during the founding of the State of Israel and the living father had fought in the Yom Kippur War, this third book thinks through the founding of the State of Israel. Thus, it circles back to the founding texts of biblical Jewish kingdoms that she references in her first book. So that's the narrative arc that I used when I decided to select which poems to get to put in this translation. Now, Oriki Daly was born in Israel in 1974, which was months after the, the Yom Kippur War. She was born into a society skeptical of its leadership and into a culture that was just beginning to shift its focus from the collective to the individual. Gidali stands a little bit apart from this generation of poets born after 1973. Their focus, the, the later generation, is usually on the individual as an individual rather than as a member of the community. But the previous generation of Israeli poets, such as Yehuda Amichai, who everybody knows about, um, and who is a major influence on Orit Gidali, often use national epic discourse to describe personal lyrical experiences. And I think that Amichai does this in order to carve out a possibility for human agency in an overdetermined political, religious, and existential environment. Um, Amichai always recognizes that the individual is bound to all the generations before that have donated me bit by bit. And this is a quote from one of his poems. Like Amichai, Gidali recognizes that the individual arises as a temporary wave in a sea of generations and that there is no pure I, that the individual is haunted by all that came before. The characters of Gidali's poetry understand that they exist in a particular pre-established geopolitical landscape and that this landscape marks them. In Gidali's work, the domestic sphere is the stage in which the drama of the geopolitical is revealed on an individual scale. And this is the main reason that I began translating her. I moved to Israel only six and a half years ago and I spoke no Hebrew, I can only pray and read the Bible a little and that was it. Um, the first two years I spent teaching English and translating from Czech. And so my Hebrew had been growing to fit the needs of my daughter, who was three at the time. So I could talk to children in Ghan, I could shop at the mega supermarket, and I could go to the airport. And that was basically what I could do in Hebrew. And I began to translate Gidali because Gidali's language is thingy. 
It is really set in a house and it's dealing with children and inanimate objects that you need to deal with children. And that's how I began <laughs> to translate. I've since improved and I've been going to Opan. But <laughs> you're looking at me like, you translated that and that's all you knew? <laughs> but um, my translation process mirrored Yidali's attitude of openness to the world. I translated her books and the manuscript for her third collection in their entirety, and then I did a preliminary selection of the poems for publication in English. I chose poems that depicted a particularly Israeli landscape and a point of view or a conundrum. I left out love poems that could have been set anywhere, and next I met with Origidali to discuss the selections that I'd made. Our original disagreements and our solution to it introduced a new kind of collaborative experience. <clears throat> Now, I translated three collections of poetry before, and I'd never had any input from the author because the Czech poets were dead, so they couldn't talk to me, and the Congolese poet was pretty hands-off about it, so um, they left me to work on my own, and in their cases, I translated the whole books I didn't select. I translated the whole thing and, and published. Um, but with Ulrike Dali's, I felt that I needed to select. They didn't all fit in the collection. So among the poems that I had originally omitted was the title poem of the first book, 20 Girls to Envy Me. This poem was an unrequited love poem written by a young poet. And we agreed it didn't measure up to the other poems, but we regretted omitting the title because it was so awesome. So um, the line was, if I had money, I would hire 20 girls to envy me, which is sort of a play on the ideal love in the Song of Songs, the retinue, O Daughters of Jerusalem, right? And so we would have lost that echo there. Now, we decided that that line, or Orit decided, because she was really reluctant to lose that, decided that that line would fit beautifully in another poem um, that was structured after the Song of Songs, and it was called My Beloved. And here's the poem. Filled were my days with sons, filled were my days with love. When he comes to the door, I will open to him and I will be wet loam. The balconies of my body, the balcony of my body is rosemary, and he clusters of vines. Sometimes in the darkness before he sleeps, I hear a grape opening. Behold, he arrives at the gate, he removes the breastplate of his clothing set with shards from the floor of our house. He kisses me and permits me to lay my ribs in the space between his ribs, and I return to him. He poeticizes our sated bodies within the earshot of his friends. They listen and are burned as by the imagined taste of lemon. Then he waves goodbye. The movement of his hand caresses from afar all the organs of my body. He kisses my hand, my fingers extended like eyelashes. He is a man holding an etrog, bringing his nose close to smell it. My beloved found a woman. He sought and he found her in himself. She is beautiful. She is more beautiful than I. My beloved is holding the sheet as if it were a mold of my body. If I wanted to explain it, I would have to twist my back. My beloved is spread before me, his head within the frame of the pillow. 
If I had money, I would hire 20 girls to envy me. Doesn't that fit nicely? You can't even tell it wasn't there with me. Okay. <laughs> this translation keeps the biblical parallelism and the anaphora. The last two lines taken from the title poem, which was not included otherwise in this collection, fit the poem even better than they fit their original poem. The original poem didn't have the biblical echoes that I'm talking about here. The poem also incorporates the origins of love, the story of Adam and Eve, right? With the reference of the ribs that interlock and, re and fuse in the act of love. So there are many disparate body parts that fuse into the body of this particular poem as the speaker takes on one historical character after another. There are several other poems that underwent this kind of transformation. There's a very long poem that I won't read for the interest in the interest of time, and it's called The Love Yonatan. And I'm looking because I have the book in my bag, but that doesn't help. I could show you. But um, The Love Yonatan, we took another strong stanza from a less strong original poem and fit it into the second poem. And as when there's an organ transplant, the new poem is much stronger for the addition. And in some cases, the addition is actually the heart of the poem. Um, these transformations happened only in Gedali's first collection. Um, actually, Yonatan was the second, but only in the first, and then, and then the, the love Yonatan. And in all the instances, an element from another poem was transplanted into a simple love poem, thereby allowing the love poems to resonate with historical events or mythological events, and thereby uh, expanding their scope. Now, Gidali's second book takes place almost exclusively in the home, and it's concerned with raising children. But again, for Gidali, domestic space is not a private retreat. Her most private and her most domestic poems are multi-voiced because, to use the metaphor here, in the house of Gidali's poetry, the body and the language and the mouths that speak it are haunted by the speaker's ancestors, by the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs, and um, by the first wife of the speaker's husband, who literally haunts the house and tarnishes the faucets and the, the metal in the house. Um, there are also present soldiers, other mothers, children that the speaker's soldier children might one day kill in war. Um, and also the, um, the people that have attempted to destroy the speaker's ancestors, relatives, and neighbors from the pogroms of Russia to the Holocaust to the Shoah. So I'll read an excerpt from the first poem in the second collection, Closing In, which is Songs to a Dead Woman given the title of our talk today, <laughs> which lays out the, speaker, the speaker's haunted domesticity. The dead woman in the title poem is the first wife. This is the songs from a dead woman, you. When you rose up in the elevator, you were not holding her in your arms. When you stretched out in bed, you were not holding her in your arms. When you opened the window, you were not holding her in your arms. When you took the dizziness pills, you were not holding her in your arms. She lays in bed, your daughter. From time to time, she cries out in her sleep. People gather, bobbing their heads around her blanket, bobbing like all her childhood seesaws gathering against her. Move over, children, let her go first. You rose through floor after floor, the umbilical cord adrift behind you like a ribbon of a gift that will never be given. Which belly did I come out of? Your daughter is asking at bedtime. 
Where is that belly, and what is it holding now? Your husband. Two boxes in the bedroom. Photos of the first wedding above photos of the second. In one, he bends toward me or toward you. His large hand is binding. The baby's first kick didn't excite him as a first kick. His eyes lit up and went dark, like the blink of a silent siren. Sometimes in the morning your name is spoken, rushing our speech so as not to tread on you by accident. Most of the time you are lying there quiet, a room that hasn't been swept. Curse of Rachel and Leah burning in me, the curse of she who does not know which one of them she is. Now, I want to say that Orit Gidali's work falls in line here with socially accepted ideas about Israeli motherhood. Unlike American mothers, Israeli mothers don't have to be happy. They just have to survive. Um, Gidali's poem demonstrates this, and Gidali also embraces the national taboo about suicide. There's no attempt at understanding postpartum depression of the victim. There's no call for better health services for women. There's no acknowledgement that most mental health services in Israel are for soldiers and victims of terror. Instead, Gidali's poem condemns suicide. In the full version of this poem, the ghost of the first wife is treated, like I said before, so is a, such a corrosive um, presence that she even tarnishes the household appliances. And I didn't choose to include the poem and, and this selected works in its entirety, partially for personal reasons. They're just, I have several students who are battling with, with suicide uh, right now, and I didn't want to normalize it. Now, that wasn't a very good editorial decision, but I, I made the personal decision myself. But I wanted to resist the biological fallacy of the lyric I also. This means that we have an impulse to read the I of the poem as the speaker, um, the speaker and the narrator as the same I as the um, biological poet who wrote the work. And I prefer to read the I of the poem, and this is gonna make sense in my translating um, technique. I prefer to read the eye of the poem, unless the poem is a narrative or a documentary poem, and there's a clear speaker, I prefer to read the eye as a placeholder that the reader can slip into. I find this method of reading the lyric eye as a placeholder useful, and it's often subversive. Have you been reading Claudia Rankin here, her book Citizen, or any of Langston Hughes's work? Um, I use these for examples because I think it's a wonderful way to test ourselves as citizen readers. Whenever we find that we don't identify with the eye of the poem, it's a good, um, it's a good thing to ask why. And this gives, this is what gives lyric poetry its political power. Claudia Rankin and Langston Hughes, for example, their poetry is political precisely because most white Americans can't empathize with the reader. They can't see themselves as the eye in the poem. Okay. I decided I didn't want to encourage the biological fallacy of the I in Gedali's poetry. Um, and this actually helped me with my um, translation selections because I, at first, Gedali was thinking that I was translating her, her voice and her emotions into English. And I told her that actually I wasn't. I was translating the world of her poems into English. And this may not actually make such a big difference in what I did as a translator, but it did make a difference to me in what I selected to include in the book. Um, so that Orit Gidali's biological life was less important to me than the arc of the, the story that my selections were, were telling. Um, 
So, and I think that this is what actually allowed us to embark on this um, innovative collaboration as well, because when we started to argue about which poems would get in, it wasn't enough that a poem had a, a emotional significance for Ulrika Dali for me. It needed to fit into um, into the world of the poem and into the world that I was helping create in this edition. Now, what I found most compelling about Ulrike Dali when I was thinking about selling it to an American audience, because at the University of Texas Press is an American press, I wanted to pick out things that, what I found compelling about Orit is that there's hardly any Israeli motherhood poetry being written in a personal <coughs> vein. Yes, Tal Nitzan writes some motherhood poetry, but her work is very, very abstract. Any mother could be any child. Are we okay on time? Are you okay? All right, so, and here's one example from Tal Nitzan to show you the difference between how Orit writes and how somebody like Tal does. Um, this is called, um, Cover. At this dark hour, all children are alike. At this darkness, the very word children is enough to make you cringe with dread. The truck's mouth opens. Salima Matria looks for treasures in the dump. Soon he'll be covered by the garbage mound. Cover. The hand reaches for the blankets that swell over their innocence. The blankets that haven't even fallen off Ahmed Zahuna will not climb again on the big armored toy. His heart flutters in his thin chest inside the rifle sight, thus fits overhead. Love is tied to a nightmare. This poem is political, and it's all about the fact that children are human beings, and it asks us to consider each child as if it were our own, even in a war situation, especially in a war situation. But it's written from the point of view of a mother going, but it's not written from the point of view of a particular mother with a particular child in a particular domestic situation. It's an abstract um, idea of motherhood, I think. I thought Goodali's surface adherence to the norms of Israeli motherhood and women's roles in Israeli society, like her poetry's seemingly uncomplicated vocabulary and syntax, did hide a subversive element, and I found that that most interesting in her work. Many of her constant references to biblical depictions of motherhood, when examined closely, focus on the first moments of the ancient Arab-Israeli conflict through the figures of Jacob, Esav, Isaac, and Ishmael. And I wanted to take just one poem here. It's an untitled poem from the series Island. And it begins, boy, there is peat from under the swamp. It's written as a prose poem in two stanzas and three end notes. And the end notes are as extensive as the poem itself. And I'm going to do, I'm trying to figure out how to read it, but I think I'm going to jump down to the end note when she does, okay? And then come back up. Boy, there is peat from under the swamp that they dried out before we got here. It's about to become a swamp of fire. Now just get out. Don't cry with Asav when he discovered that the hand of his father didn't really recognize him and didn't stroke his hair. Don't cry with, Jake, with Jacob when Rachel was revealed to him and all the years were spread before him, replacing her again and again with another weary woman. Don't even cry with Joseph when, before he lost his family, he realized how deep the pit was and to what extent he was indeed devoured, just as they had said, torn and devoured with no way back. We will upholster, wait, sorry. The dot on the ground which you see from your window is me shrinking into myself to make room in the world for your travels. Or even better, don't go out. Don't cry, laugh with all that worthy thing that revives itself. Rachel's Jacob, the brother's Joseph, 
even a sob who kisses his father, to be loving if not beloved. Turn to God, my son. Turn to some God, and you, will re and you will be redeemed within all this our ancestors and this our children and all the mediations which again and again deceive. And we will upholster the walls with more books, not to save us, but to augment our weight, to sink together, comforted in the depths. We will remain embraced. The word mother will be fixed around you. Its beginning is from the beginning, like a strip of internal time, holiday after holiday. The biblical passages from which Gidali draws suggests that the mothers were instrumental in determining which sons were preferred. Thus, they are responsible for shaping national identity. So in the Bible, Sarah is able to um, cast out Hagar and Ishmael, right? Um, but here in this particular poem, the speaker embraces both sons. In contrast to them, in contrast to them, the characters she envisions were born into a historical world, but they didn't perhaps live up to their potential because they were excluded from the community. Don't cry, says the poem. Wait just a minute. Yeah. Of the characters mentioned in the poem, Isav is the father of Israel's historic enemies, the Edomites, the Amalekites, and in the poem, he's welcomed back to the family, along with the other Jewish brothers and sons who were lied to and tricked by their family members. These include Joseph, who was sold by his brothers, and Jacob, who was given the wrong bride. Don't cry, says the poem, but rather turn to God. Turn to some God and you'll be redeemed. With all our children, these, our ancestors are in quotation marks, our children are in quotation marks. Um, these lines are placed in a footnote in the poem as if they themselves were the peat from under the swamp. And indeed, more of the poem is footnote than text, implying that the story on the surface, the story told by men and winners, is hardly the story at all. And when one reads the passage of Genesis to which this poem refers, one notes that only after Asav has forgiven Jacob does God again affirm Jacob's status as a nation, changing Jacob's name to Israel. So the upper part of the story wouldn't be possible with what's hidden below. There's a lot of context, and it's important to the understanding of the poem, but I didn't want to put this in the poem itself. Um, so what I did, I got the idea from my former mentor, Khalid Matawa, who uses an appendix in each of his Arab language translations. And so I just put an appendix in the selection rather than um, deal with all of this material in the, in the poem itself. In the interests of time, I, I just want to say, though, that there were two kinds, there were three kinds of, um, there were three kinds of um, transformations that Orit Gedali and I did in the, in the selected works. We, we took pieces of one poem and we put them into another poem. Um, we excerpted, and the third thing that we did was in her third collection. Do I have time to talk about the third collection? She's really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So Gidali's third collection is called Cradle, and it caused the most consternation to me as a translator because she gave me the manuscript before it was published in Hebrew, saying that she'd sent it to her press, and I assumed it was the final version. But after I translated it, I discovered she'd rewritten almost all the poems. <laughs> Since we've already talked about the state of my Hebrew when I began to translate, and I didn't have time or desire to retranslate the whole book, 
We looked at the versions that I had translated and the new versions that Gidali had created, choosing carefully which of her revisions were absolutely worth my retranslating. And often she decided that her original version, the one that I had translated, was stronger. Um, she had over-edited when she was revising. Often, she, often we decided to use the original version, but we'd add a new stanza or cut an old one. So I'll read you one poem, which is, has an example of the original poem that we kept, one piece that I insisted go into it, and one stanza that she insisted go into it, and I'll tell you about them. I'll read the whole poem first. Yearning Crumbs. Return, return. I'm waiting in the kitchen. How did you know to teach me that the flour is the Torah and the kneading calms the yeast like the flocks before the slaughter? That the general opens into the private with the password of the hands and that in the vanilla there is no cheating. When you were alive, there were entire days I could not think about you and now there are entire days I can. I do not manifest my sorrow in the streets but everyone with a mother is suspect to me. You collect the crumbs with a sweep of your hand, straightening your glasses by aligning the frames with the ears, not the lenses with the eyes, replying with the body that you already lost, and I almost forgot what I held in my Adam's apple, clenched on the words that were once between us. And now look at us, chatting for hours. There is no rule about these things. I read you the winners of the short story contest, even the jury comments. To the jury comments, you would never in your life have listened. But I don't care, we're having a good time. The phone is on silent and I'm not subjected to the knowledge that you don't call. I'm telling you about my life the way I tell my friends. It's only that I happen to have more of it than you do. The little one has learned to read. The older one still believes that the answer will always be yes. And the home is the place in which the sum of total actions outweighs the total sum of non-actions. Every morning I wake up in it, scale-crazed, and sometimes I forget that you... And here you are, shifting your gaze. Now, in her, in her um, revised version, Orit had cut out the line, when you were alive, there were entire days I could not think of you, and now there are entire days that I can. But I felt that the poem didn't exactly work without that couplet because the couplet provides the anchoring statement about the ambivalent relationship between the mother and the daughter. On the other hand, Orit created a new couplet. I do not manifest my sorrow in the streets, but everyone with a mother is suspect to me. And originally I resisted that because we move from the kitchen and the baking while reading a newspaper into a different realm. We move out into the street with protests and with manifestations and demonstrations and suspects, reminds me of um, terror attacks. And I didn't feel that it necessarily belonged in the domestic space of the kitchen. However, Orit's judgment prevailed here. And in the end, I think that the combination of our couplets balance out the tensions in the poem and that the poem is better because of that, that little internal struggle. It gives it a little bit of kick. So the last kind of combination doesn't draw upon the metaphors of afterlife so much as it draws upon the concept of string theory, perhaps. Um, this kind of translation tactic allows the poem to live in two present tenses at once. In Orit's Hebrew language publication, she keeps her version, not our version, that we, that we fought over. 
Um, and I guess I'll end here then. And that's <laughs> string theory. <laughs> on string theory. <laughs> Love you.